Coming up on Why I Move. For that first week, I would just like feel the water hit me and feel as though like my skin was being burned. But after about a week or so, I was just like, okay, it, it's not going to kill me and it's going to be fine. And then it was fine. And not only was it fine, but I started to actually like crave it because it would just give you this intense clarity of thought. I'm Hannah. And I'm Natasha. We're editors at LUK. And in this podcast, we're digging deep into the highs and lows of our guests' lives as we talk to them about how they move. This podcast is created by Elle in association with Nike. Each episode, we'll be inviting Nike coaches and trainers to join the conversation and share their stories about how movement has affected their lives. This week, we're joined by coach Alex Hipwell. Alex, before we start the show and meet our celebrity guest, what is your area of expertise? My area of expertise is working with women. It's really giving them the tools to be able to understand their unique hormone profile, to show up for themselves for the long game and not just short term, and to start to understand just how wonderful their beautiful bodies are. What's your number one tip for anyone looking to start moving more? Start small. Break it down to the smallest time that you can say, I could do that right now. 10 minutes every day is 70 minutes at the end of the week. And it's so much better than nothing. Amazing. I love that. Catch up with you later, Alex. Now on with the show. Today, we're joined by Emma Dabbery. Hi, Emma. My pleasure. Emma is an Irish-Nigerian broadcaster, academic and best-selling author. Her work spans African studies, art, sociology, history, film, literature, theatre, popular culture and music. On screen, Emma has presented a number of shows, including BBC Two's Back in Time for Brixton, Channel 4's Is Love Racist?, and several social history films for BBC's The One Show. Emma's 2019 best-selling debut, Don't Touch My Hair, has inspired national conversations about race and hair. And her latest book, What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition, draws on years of research and personal experience and aims to create meaningful, lasting change. Now, at Elle, we have known Emma for some time, and she's one of our esteemed contributing editors. Emma's work is incredibly thought-provoking, and she's just one of the most insightful people you could meet. You get smarter just by being in the room with her. So we're thrilled to have her as a guest on this L podcast. Emma, welcome to Why I Move. How are you feeling today? Yeah, I'm feeling really good. Even better after your your generous and glowing appraisal. Thank you so much. You're too kind. We're just here to be your hype women. (laughs) So before we move on to your chosen movement, Mm -hmm. I'd like to go back in time a little bit and ask you what your relationship was like with sport and exercise growing up. So I really, really disliked sport and exercise growing up. When I was growing up, um, so when I was a kid in the 80s and a teenager in the 90s, um, and I was in Dublin in in Ireland, there were very, very few black people. However, there were a lot of ideas about black people that were circulating in society. And one of those, which is not unique to Ireland, but is like, you know, something that you encounter um, in a lot of places, is that, well, there was this 
assumption that I would be naturally very inclined towards sports and that I would excel at sports. So I think the fact that I didn't feel a particular natural inclination towards sports at all combined like with this assumption that's rooted in like racist stereotyping made me actually like resistant to sports so yeah I just didn't enjoy playing sports at all and a little birdie told me that (laughs) you maybe there was maybe a reason to go to some rugby matches (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't strictly about the exercise. Yeah, I just like, so one of the schools that I went to, there was, um, there was, there was boys schools that were kind of, if they were playing, the girls from that school would go and if they were playing rugby, the girls from that school would like go and watch. So yeah, I went to quite a few rugby matches, but I think it was more to kind of like see cute guys (laughs) and any great interest in the sports. (laughs) Was there any point where your aversion to kind of taking part in those sorts of sports and because of people's expectations, whether that changed for you and your relationship with movement and exercise changed? Yeah. After I had my second son and it was lockdown, I started to just feel like really, really like sluggish and really like I actually just like need to move. Like I'm actually like desperate. Um, I'm kind of like desperate to exercise. And I think I realised in lockdown was although I didn't kind of officially do lots of exercise, I actually I don't drive. I can't drive. Um and so I actually always walked loads. And then with lockdown, I really like noticed the um, the absence of that. And so I got a trainer. I got a personal trainer who used to work for Nike, actually, who's amazing, who's become like a really close friend of mine. And I started like working out with her. And um, I feel like that kind of like shifted something. And I felt how good I was starting to like, you know, feel after like working out. And then... Um, I left London and like moved to the coast. But by then, and this is all in the last kind of like two years, I was just like, oh, I really need to like incorporate like regular exercise into my into my routine. And actually leaving London really helps as well, because just living in a much smaller place. Now I was living somewhere where I could like go and do hot yoga, which I've become like completely obsessed with. I could get there in like five minutes. So I started doing hot yoga, got another personal trainer. I now like swim in the cold, cold sea. But these are all things that yeah have started to happen in the last kind of like two years. It's amazing to hear and and great to know that you can kind of like you can start at any time. So I think that's a real barrier for a lot of other people is worrying that because they haven't done it for so long, it's too much of an insurmountable object to start. So it's nice to hear that you're like, well, I took it up recently and it's all great. Yes. When I tell people like about hot yoga and about like swimming and stuff, I feel like I seem like this really like smug person who's like just always been like this. But I'm I'm always make pains to say, listen, this is like so traditionally like unlike me if I can be like fit if I can go in cold water like literally like anyone can do (laughs) what would your 14 year old self think looking at you now wow she would probably be shocked that I was outside in public with like no makeup on or I was going to get into the sea and it was gonna like get wet and run or something yeah So I think this actually brings us really nicely onto this section of the show called The Starting Line, Mm -hmm. Um, because that's the part where we ask how you got into the sport that you're here to kind of talk to us about Mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. And you've touched on it, but let's hear properly how you got into sea swimming. Yeah, so it was again during lockdown when I had this like um, real desire and thirst to just like 
you know, move and be more physically like fit and active and was feeling like quite sluggish. And around that time, I was reading like lots of people, lots of, yeah, mostly women talking about wild swimming and the profound benefits that that was having. And I was just, and some of what they were describing, I was like, oh, I'd really like to, I'd really like to experience that, but like, I hate being cold. (laughs) So like, there's a basic problem there. Um, And I also have this thing called Raynard's syndrome, which is like circulatory. So if I went outside and I was outside, like a short period of time, like a couple of minutes, like all of the color would just drain from my fingers and they'd just be blue and basically immobile and like really, really painful. Like there's times where I've been like locked out of my house because I literally like can't use my key because my hand is like so frozen. So I was just like, yeah, how's this going to work? Like with the Raynards and everything, but I really want to try it. So then we decided that we were moving to the coast and I was just like, right, I'm going to be like right next to the sea. Like I really need to like make the most of that like incredible resource. So about six months before we knew we'd be moving to prepare myself for eventually getting into the sea, which I was determined to do, I started taking like ice cold showers. And the first week of those was like horrific. For that first week, I would just like feel the water hit me and feel as though like my skin was being burned. But after about a week or so, I was just like, okay, it it's not going to kill me. Like it's grand. It's actually grand. Like stop being so resistant to it. And then I wouldn't let myself kind of like hunch up and I wouldn't let myself scream. And I was like, I just have to breathe and let the cold water hit me and it's going to be fine. And then it was fine. And not only was it fine, but I started to actually like crave it because it would just give you this intense clarity of thought. So I actually started to really like look forward to like getting up early so I could have like my ice cold shower. And then, yeah, that was the the beginning. That was how I was training myself to like eventually get into the sea. I would love to hear a little bit about, could you walk me through what you do when you get in the sea? This is just, I'm <laughs> like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be shy about this. I'm quite scared of the sea. It's more the unknown of what, I'm not scared of the exercise and the cold necessarily, mm-hmm. but it's just more the sea itself. It's dark in there and there might be things. <laughs> oh yeah, there's things. <laughs> and like, it's the UK, so it's quite opaque and you yeah. just like, don't know what the things are. Probably not, probably not sharks, but maybe, maybe just like some wild seaweed how far out are you going like how powerful is this swim like how how much of an adventure is this yeah 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 so um I don't actually like submerging my head underwater so I will go like kind of like up to my neck like if my head goes underwater that's fine but I actually kind of try and avoid that happening and I don't like do strokes where I put my head under under the water so for me the main thing initially was actually just to like immerse myself in really really cold water so I would kind of just like paddle but as I've been doing it more and more I've actually started like to swim more as well. I was I've swum on the Kent coast before and I've always sort of had this vision of like just strolling into the sea but actually with the pebbles you're sort of like hobbling over the there's no kind of like elegant way of doing it you just have to get in. Yeah and and it's quite painful on your feet. A lot of people wear slippers like little swimming shoes, which I have. But again, I actually often, I don't ever really use them. I think I really hate anything where I have to, to, I know it would only take a few seconds, but it just like kind of annoys me even taking them on and taking them off. So I'd rather just like, I'd rather go for it. 
In your phenomenally insightful book, Don't Touch My Hair, you say that water is symbolically powerful in many West African traditions. So I was interested to know if you thought the sea swimming was in any way like a spiritual act for you. Yes, water and the sea do feature strongly in um, lots of West African traditions. And then I think for me, in addition to that, it's also being from Ireland, I've often thought like the relationship to um, the Atlantic Ocean has been like a really kind of symbolic theme in lots of my work because it's like, so it's like on the coast of Ireland and then it's also on the coast of Nigeria, which is like my paternal ancestry. And it is the channel and the medium through which, you know, so many people from the ethnic group on my paternal side were kidnapped and like transported to what would become America, what became America. And I think like that movement of people and the profound social, economic and cultural consequences of that and the role of the Atlantic Ocean in that in that movement has always been something that like I symbolically like that that is a theme that you know that, that comes up like in a lot of my work and then also that thing of like on the coast of Ireland it's just the expanse on the west coast it's just the expanse of the Atlantic Ocean again until you hit America and um you know like the famine ships that Irish people like left Ireland from when they were escaping the famine. There was that mass migration of, of, of Irish people to America. But yeah, the sea is inspiring to me in lots of ways. So for any first timers who maybe were like you and could never imagine themselves getting in the sea, especially mm-hmm. not in winter, do you have any hacks for braving the cold? Yeah. So I feel like definitely like the way I was reacting to the showers in that first week which is completely understandable because I was just like acclimatizing myself and like, you know, just your whole body being kind of resistant to it and like breathing rapidly or like screaming or like shouting or anything. That really just puts you into like, I think like an emotional state and a mental state that like is is panicked. So it just makes it worse. And if you can actually just like kind of ground yourself and realize that all it is really is initial discomfort which actually is only temporary as well and is replaced by something that becomes quite addictive if you can just kind of yeah ground yourself and I think be quite grounded it it will really help and then the more you do it like the easier it becomes and then yeah I feel like you actually become kind of addicted to how it feels don't go anywhere we're just going to a quick ad break We've created this podcast with Nike in a bid to uncover what gets some of the most inspirational women moving. Let's find out how Nike coach Alex Hipwell moves with a quickfire question round. Ready, Alex? I'm ready. Morning or evening workout? Morning. Weights or cardio? Weights. Yoga or Pilates? Pilates. Exercising indoor or outdoor? Outdoor. Best motivational tip? Show up for yourself. Okay, in one word only, how does moving make you feel? Empowered. Now, back to the show. 
Okay, so in this section of the show, we ask guests about any hurdles they have faced when it comes to movement or continue to face, Mm -hmm. whether it's injury, illness, body perception or doubt. Mm -hmm. Emma, your book Don't Touch My Hair centres around the history and experiences of black hair. Now, I've heard you talking about in your childhood, sometimes seeing your hair as a barrier to, you know, movement and sport and exercise. Has hair maintenance ever felt like a barrier to you when it comes to your sea swimming? So for swimming, I don't wear a swimming hat or anything in the sea, but actually I was at a pool recently and you had to wear um, swimming hats, which is completely understandable in a pool. And I just ended up not getting in because I was just like, I wasn't in anywhere where I was going to be able to buy a hat that was going to fit over my hair. And I didn't want to like real pain. It wouldn't have a fit anyway, but maybe I could have like tried to kind of like painfully like squeeze like a quarter of it in or something. And I was like, oh, I'd rather just not. I'd rather just not go in the pool. So things like that, I guess. You've spoken about your 14 year old self not wanting to get wet or go in the water because of makeup. And you're a very glamorous woman. <laughs> Do you still have the same kind of worries or doubts about getting into the sea and, and following that impulse? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't at all. Like, I think when I was younger, I actually wouldn't have been able to because I would have been like so scared of somebody seeing me like without makeup. Whereas now I wear makeup and I love makeup, but I don't wear it every day. Um, so because I don't have that fear of being seen without makeup anymore, yeah, swimming or something like that, or going into the sea. Um, I will say sometimes I feel like I don't shave. And while that's but I mean, I get like, I do get comments, not on the beach. I don't know, maybe people are thinking things, but no one says anything. But I get comments about not shaving, like not shaving my armpits on like social media. But I don't really care about that. But like, I also don't want to shave like my bikini line. It's not actually very, it's, the, the hair is virtually invisible, like imperceptible almost. But like when I was younger there being even like one hair there like you know I would have died you know I just couldn't I just and now like I refuse to shave but sometimes I'm a bit like oh I really do wish that was just like seal like smooth for the beach but I'm like nope not gonna do it not gonna do it so maybe that's a little sticking point like where I still feel like a little bit uncomfortable sometimes but I force myself to kind of like push through it. I think that's because of years of thinking that we can't do that. I saw a brilliant video on your social media that was you on holiday and you're running into the sea and you take your shorts off and you can see a little bit of string of your tampon (laughs) and you run into the sea. But in your comments, you say, which I think is so brilliant that you saw that and your immediate reaction was, I can't. Yeah, do (laughs) not post, do not post. But you decided to post it and you sat with that discomfort. Can you tell us a little bit more about that kind of feeling and the shame? Yeah. When I was a teenager, yeah, it'd be hard to think of anything worse than people knowing that you were having your period. Like, it would have been, like, social death. Like, it just, like, I'm actually, like, cringing, like, thinking about, like, how bad that would have been for you, (laughs) like, if if it was known. Obviously, the pressure isn't strong like that anymore, but it's still something that I, you know, was kind of like conditioned into and that has really like informed how I feel but then yeah I made that video um 
But then, like you were saying, when I watched back over the video and I was just like happy with everything and then right at the end, I saw that string and I was just like, oh, I have to delete it. And then I was just like, no, I'm just having my period like a huge proportion of the population is something that actual like human life depends on. Why on earth? Do I feel so ashamed about that? I, w I want to like push, I want to push through that because I don't want to like sit with that shame. So for me, it was um, just about kind of like asserting to myself that like I can do this and that like I don't, yeah, I don't feel ashamed, even though it was difficult, but I'm glad that I did it. It, 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 it helped me and lots of other people like commented saying that they appreciated it as well. So It's wild to me that things like, growing your natural body hair or showing a bit of tampon string is an act of rebellion. <laughs> You've talked a lot actually about, you know, finding a way to be at peace, not performing femininity for people or performing people's ideas of perfection. But I'm interested in how you got to that point where you were confident to do that because so many women are not confident to do that. Yeah, I think like a lot of it, is related to my relationship with my with my hair and when I made the decision to stop chemically straightening my hair that was huge when I was a kid I just dreamt of having like long straight hair you know I'd like literally like pray every night to just wake up and have like straight brown hair well like blonde probably ideally but like I was just like I'll settle for brown as long as it's straight um and it never happened but I moved to England I had basically like finally like achieved the hair that I had dreamed of my whole life it was long it was like past shoulder length it was straight it required a lot of very unhealthy chemicals to achieve that look but some people say they stop relaxing their hair because it's like breaking their hair breaking or damaging their hair my hair was actually fine <laughs> like it was it was flourishing but I came to a point where I just felt that like I couldn't any longer like my my personal politics didn't align with the processes I was going through to make my hair look like that and the motivation being ashamed of like my natural hair texture I just I'd always felt the tension but it got to the point where I was just like no I, I actually like I can't there's just too much like I can't I can't do this any longer so I think through the the process of like going through that which was very difficult for me had a knock-on effect on like other aspects of um things to do with my body like weight and body hair wearing makeup those kind of things. And then I felt a real sense of frustration at like the many years that I had wasted hating myself and doing things that were quite damaging in order to look different, but not in any way that's actually better, just to like conform to some standard that I don't even like, I realized I didn't even want to look like that, you know? How has movement helped you feel more connected with your body? That's also like a really interesting question because I think like a lot of the stuff around my hair, I think I was actually like super disconnected from my body and I was intentionally and have been intentionally and this new, one of the things that I'm writing is is a play called Throwing Shapes, which is like a very Dublin phrase that is related to how one kind of like moves through the world and also related to dancing. But... 
I'm very intentionally trying to pursue more like embodied practices. But I think I didn't even realize like how disconnected I was from my body until again, I think it was that process of stopping straightening my hair and like just understanding my hair as it as it as it grew, as it grows naturally. Okay, so this part of the show, this next little segment is called Ask Me Anything. Mm -hmm. And it's our chance to hear from the L readers who are familiar with your work. Mm -hmm. Um, So we asked our readers to send in some questions that they were desperate to ask you. Mm -hmm. And we've had a couple. This one's from Halima. How does swimming change your hair care routine? Yeah, so while I've been swimming, I think my hair has mostly been braided. So... Like usually when I'd go on holiday and I would know that I'd be getting into the water because before I didn't get into the water, like if it was very warm. So when I was going on holiday, I would always braid my hair as many black women do, because that just makes like getting in and out of the water much easier in terms of hair care. So I think usually my hair has been braided. If it's not been braided, I've had it usually had it in had my own hair just in twists. And I would usually just put the twists like up high. But because it's not relaxed and because I'm not trying to like keep it straight, and because it's twisted or braided, it's pretty straightforward in the water. Yeah. If it was relaxed or straightened, that would be another story. <laughs> um, Luke would like to know whether you've ever considered free diving. Just diving with well, none of the... It's no equipment because yeah, you're obviously yeah, yeah. with your like not not even a stitch or a yeah. wetsuit. Um, <laughs> free diving is, is basically you hold your breath mm-hmm. and you train yourself to hold it longer and longer and then you basically do the diving that you would but without the scuba yeah. gear and you can see all the beautiful under creatures absolutely not no. <laughs> like, like, out of the fair qu- enough out of the question <laughs> I would not <laughs> sorry Luke now in this final section of the show how I keep it going we're going to discuss with expert Nike coaches how to make fitness sustainable for all We're joined again by Nike coach Alex Hipwell. She's on the line from Berlin. Hello, Alex. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me here. It's lovely to have you. You have a specialty in looking at women's bodies and women's cycles. And I'm wondering how that fits into cold temperature training and to exercise. Well, first of all, I'm really impressed, Emma, because I hate cold water. I hate the cold. I'm stuck in Berlin and I'm Australian. There's still not a lot of research done on women, unfortunately, Um, but I always say there's 6% done, so let's work with what we have. And there was a research that came out quite recently in, in regards to performance enhancing or performance and recovery when it comes to cold water immersion, and they just wrote there was nothing really found of the 15 men that were involved. So I was like, come on. What we do know with women is as we move into the high hormone phases, which is just after ovulation. So as we get a you know a big boost of progesterone and estrogen, the female body or our physiology struggles to regulate heat. So we kind of get really hot and we kind of can't cool down so well. Therefore, cold water immersion is fantastic if you want to implement that into maybe a recovery form of your training or yourself in your high hormone phases. So pretty much if we look at a textbook cycle from day 14 to 21, it's such a perfect time to implement that as a form of recovery. Of course, if you like to do it, you know, for other reasons like Emma and it becomes really part of your everyday schedule, I'd be interested to know if you notice changes more so in your high hormone with the cold water immersion than you do in your low hormone. 
what changes should she look for? Well, I mean, it's. I think it's really important to state, uh, especially this far in the game where we are with the limited research that we do have, is that people can or are physically capable of performing on any given day of their cycle. So we know that we can do you know, if we have to perform or we have to run or we have to flee, we know that we can do that on any given day. But the impact of every single woman, regardless of where she is in her cycle from her menstrual cycle symptoms is very, very different. So I think once you start to learn how to track your cycle, which is beautiful, and I was a professional dancer for 15 years. So my cycle was not on the books. I hated everything about my body. Um, I was very, very unhealthy. And so knowing anything about my period was, it didn't even happen most of the time, which is so unhealthy. You know, that's our superpower. So if you start to track your cycle and then know where your powerful days are and where maybe your not so powerful days are, it gives you the tools to be able to say, okay, rather than coming into maybe a high hormone week, which is the week before your period, where your hormones are high, which means emotion is going to change, your mindset's different, all of that is impacted by the hormones in your body. And if you go into that week and say, you know what, I'm going to do some cold water immersion, I'm going to do some mobility and focus more on technique and strength things rather than like high intensity and really working against the physiology. So it, it's, it creates a beautiful circle and beautiful relationship with yourself when you start to understand where you are in your cycle, when your powerful days are and when maybe your not so powerful days are. Thanks, Alex. That's so insightful. And I've paid so little attention to my own cycle that I feel like there's a lot of power that I'm not harnessing at the moment, such as an excuse to not do the heavy, hardcore stuff when I'm just a bit sleepy and not really feeling it. But thank you so much for the information because, yeah, maybe I should go out there and learn a bit more about my own body. (laughs) And thank you, Emma. We've had such a glorious time talking to you and definitely inspired to get in the sea. Oh my God, do it. I want that clarity of thought. (laughs) I'm craving that. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much for being our guest. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. We would love to hear what you'll be taking from this episode. Email us at podcasts at luk.com or you can DM us at luk. If you love Emma, you can find her on Instagram at Emma Dabbery. Next week, we're going to be joined by the brilliant broadcaster and television presenter, Nikita Oliver. She's going to be talking about the joy of skipping and how she's created a whole new community around it. If you've enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends. Make sure you never miss an episode by following Why I Move on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This was an LUK podcast in association with Nike. Produced by Curly Media for Hearst. See you next week. This podcast was brought to you by Nike. We're joined by coach Alex Hipwell. Alex, what do you always make sure to do after a training session? Eat. The most important thing that I do for myself is fuel that workout that you just did. Make it count. Thanks, Alex.